Welcome to the Canucks Hour with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Dremitz. The game underway with Kurt Fraser dumping the puck into the Calgary zone and tips the grenade right in front. This is where Vancouver talks Canucks. Ten seconds left. Marcus Naslund to the net. Stop. Scores. Scores. Matt Cook. Cash it in. Messer passes back through the middle for Pedersen off the bench. Took it off and broke it. Stick and scored. Pedersen on the backhand elevates it over Peter Morazic. And the Canucks win. On the official home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. The Canucks are trying to right the ship in Chicago tonight, but Quinn Hughes is going to be a game-time decision. It's the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. I'm Jamie Dodd, and joining me from the luxurious comfort of his hotel room in Chicago is Thomas Drance, my co-host. Drancer, what's going on, man? Got back from the rink just moments ago, and it was an interesting day, even though the Canucks didn't skate. And Adam Gaudet was a healthy scratch, meaning I wasn't able to chat with him. I don't know that he's really addressed his departure from the organization since he joined the Chicago Blackhawks organization. I basically went to morning skate to chat with Gaudet, wasn't able to. So it goes. Going to be a very interesting game tonight, Jamie. Yeah, the Canucks will not see Adam Gaudet line up on the other side. As you said, he is going to be a healthy scratch, which is why he was not made available to you or any other Vancouver media to chat a little bit about his departure from the city. The Canucks didn't skate at all today, but there were still some interesting uh, nuggets from what you did see at the rink. And I should say they didn't do a, a team skate, but a few individuals were on the ice. Before we go any farther, the Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Like a manager finding their team the right pieces to win, Avenue Machinery will stop at nothing to find the machinery you're looking for. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. And I should also say we always welcome your text 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. So no team skate game day for the Vancouver Canucks as they get ready to take on the Blackhawks at 5.30 Pacific time this evening. But three individuals did get out and get some work in on the ice today. That was Vasily Podkolzin, Luke Shen, and Quinn Hughes. Drancer, what do you read into the presence of those three on the ice this morning in Chicago? Well, they were working pretty hard. Like, they were working pretty hard shooting at Thatcher Demko, who is starting. And, and I could tell from the routine that Thatcher Demko was starting. Uh, you know, lots of movement in terms of hitting him with shots on the rush from down low. Uh, you know, that was, a, that was what I'd call a rinse group. Like, that is a scratch group, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of how they looked. Now, in Quinn Hughes' case, I think you probably take it with a little sprinkling like a salt based sprinkling of salt here because you know his status does appear to be up in the air right and it's possible especially after he didn't practice with the club on Wednesday that he wanted to skate and just try it out and see how it felt to perhaps add some information that the Canucks could use in deciding whether or not he'll play tonight right like there is a chance that Hughes is still a game time decision Travis Green sort of intimated that he was close. Uh, the fact that Brad Hunt, however, who would obviously draw out of the lineup where Hughes to come in, didn't play or wasn't skating does suggest that at the very least, like we can't say definitively from the group whether or not Quinn Hughes will play tonight or not. But, you know, I think we can definitively say because Brad Hunt was there that the club is preparing to play tonight without Quinn Hughes. As for Pod Colson and Shen, I would say that, that those two are likely scratched tonight. Um, surely with Chason and Burroughs drawing back in. 
Yeah, with Quinn Hughes, Travis Green had a had a very short and sweet uh, media availability not long after these guys skated. It was just you and our our play by play ace Brendan Bachelor uh, lobbing questions at Travis Green. He did say that Quinn Hughes, you know, fighting a lower body injury, but he's close. Reiterated kind of what he said. Uh, after the Buffalo game, that he was close before that game too. So we'll see. It's a, it sounds very much like a game time decision for Quinn Hughes. I would lean slightly at this point towards him not dressing for the game tonight in Chicago, but it definitely remains to be seen. As you said, Luke Shen and of more interest, I think Vasily Podkolz and the other two guys who are out there getting rinsed, working hard on the ice this morning with Quinn Hughes, seems very, very probable that they will be scratches for the game against the Blackhawks. Now, we didn't get confirmation of that from Travis Green. You see, all he would confirm about his lineup is that Thatcher Demko is going to start. But again, reading all of the evidence, reading the tea leaves, it certainly seems like Vasily Podkolzin and Luke Shen are going to be out of the lineup tonight. And the Vasily Podkolzin one is obviously going to be really interesting. That's something that our listeners, I know, are going to have a lot of thoughts about, a lot of reaction to. So get those reactions in, 650-650 to the Dumber Lumber text message inbox. And, you know, Drancer, earlier in the week, your, I think, your first edition of To The Point on this show was talking about the need for Vasily Podkolzin to have consistent ice time at the NHL level. And it's fine if that's consistent ice time in a fourth-line role, but some sort of consistency so he can build the reps he needs to maybe later in the year be a, a guy who moves the needle for you in the lineup. I mean, look, it's only one game, but this is obviously the opposite of that, right? He's coming out of the lineup entirely now, and... I don't know. I, 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 I'm, I'm not saying there's any cause for concern here or that they're going to sap his confidence or anything like that. But it is interesting, you know, kind of coming off the first real stinker of the season that the move Travis Green seems prepared to make is to yank Pod Colson from the lineup. Yeah, and I think we understand Burroughs going in over Shen, especially with the way the club just couldn't break out of their own zone, right? Like, clearly, especially in the event that you don't have Hughes in the lineup, you need as many guys that can move the puck that can help you skate it out as possible. Uh, so, you know, that one makes sense. The Pod Colson one, you know, I, I get why fans would be frustrated, obviously. I mean, I was I was noting that, you know, I what I wanted was to see him play consistently for a reason, right? Like, that is what I'd like to see now. All of that said, I think if he's scratched two or three times in the first half of the year, that's not a huge issue to me. But if this is something that lingers, it certainly is. Now, two things are suggested to me by this. One is, I do think we'll see Chase on back in, and I do wonder if we'll see him back with the first power play unit. I'd expect we will. They scored two goals with that sort of Chase on Miller, Pedersen, Horvat Hughes now obviously we don't know if Hughes will play but that unit scored two goals in the first three games chase on drew out of the lineup first unit looked a little bit lost I'd, I'd have to assume that Hughes's absence from that first unit was a bigger reason why than yeah. chase ons but but nonetheless you know with the way that the power play is going with the importance that might be you know gained for the Canucks by a garbage goal at some point I mean, I, I understand why you'd want Chase on the lineup. The question then becomes, you know, why Dowling? I mean, I guess he scored. But, you know, uh, I do sort of think that Pod Colson played well enough in Buffalo that, you know, I, I would have seen him play. I understand why the fans would be frustrated about that decision. In terms of the overall sort of developmental arc that he's on, though, I, I don't think this is a concern from that perspective so long as it's not a regular occurrence, right? It, it can happen now and then. 
hockey guys always say like, oh, it's good to watch from the press box. Like sometimes it's good, <laughs> whatever. I have no idea if that's true or not. I don't, I don't play this game at a high enough level, but uh, you know, I, I, for me, it's not a huge concern developmentally. It's, it's more about, you know, looking through and, and wondering like in a game that it's important for the Canucks to respond. And we'll get into this a little bit later, including into the point, like did green want a veteran lineup that understood the stakes right from a, from a organizational perspective of an effort tonight, as opposed to having a young guy, uh, that's sort of the other big question that this poses. Yeah, and my reaction with Pug Coles, and we're getting tons of texts in, 650-650, this one unsigned says, it's ridiculous if Pug Coles in a scratch. He was one of only few guys that played well last game. Green is being silly. To, to Vasily, okay. Uh, that, that was a bit of a tongue twister, but I wasn't expecting there. Uh, another unsigned text that says, look, scratches happen. It shouldn't be an issue, especially with the competition we have. The real issue is the way Greener is having the team play. And I, I agree that, you know, one scratch early in the season for Vasily Podgolzin is not, you know, it's certainly not reason to panic about his development or his confidence or, you know, how Green sees the player or anything like that. I look at it, and on the one hand, I do understand it, because I think the thing with Vasily Podkolzin so far, dating back to training camp in the preseason, is when he hasn't been performing well, it's because he's looked tentative out there, right? And that he's mm -hmm. he, you, you can notice him trying to process the game and maybe not quite doing it quickly enough. And I just think of, okay, if you're a tentative player, that's exactly what Travis Green doesn't want in the lineup right now, right? He wants fast quick, decisive players out there. So I understand it from that perspective coming off the loss against Buffalo. I guess my hang-up would be, okay, but you're bringing in Alex Chason, who's not exactly a burner out there, right? Like, he's not going to necessarily increase your team's speed. So on the one hand, I get it. Okay, look, Pod Colson's still still learning the pace of the game. You don't want in, that in there right now uh, in a game with, you know, you, you really want to bounce back performance out of your team, but... Okay, the replacement is Alex Chason. So I, I'm, I'm a little bit torn here. I get it on the one hand, but uh, I don't know. I, I could also see the value of having Vasily Podkolzin in the lineup tonight. Yeah, for sure. I, and, I mean, it's not an easy decision, I'm sure, right? Like, But I do think, overall, the, the key thing that working against him is if you want Chason in for the power play, right, and you've got Dowling, Highmore, Lamico, and, and Dickinson as your main PK guys, right, then who would come out? for pod colson like once you decide that you want chase on on the power play you know pod colson's almost your only option to take a guy out from that bottom six right like without without harming your power yep. play. so i do think that that's a huge factor here is clearly if chase on's in there he's going to be at the net front he's going to be standing in front of the goalie and that's that would be the primary driver of this reason though i do again wonder how much having a veteran lineup in a game where you need a response type effort is also coloring that decision. It's the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drance. Keep your texts coming in about the lineup decisions, about your thoughts going into this game against the Chicago Blackhawks. As you said, Drancer, you know the team is looking for a major statement, a bounce back, a response, whatever cliche you want to throw out there. We do it every time around this time of the show. Drancer's got lots to say, so let's go. Let's get right to the point. Here's a good idea. Hughes shoots for the line and scores! Quinn Hughes from the left point! Have a point. Oliver Ekman Larson from the top of the point! It makes it so much more interesting for the listener. Quinn Hughes with a bullet for the point, and the Canucks get a power play goal. Let's get to the point. Jamie, here's what really matters about tonight. It's not the result, it's not the two points on the line. 
It's that this group of players comes out in Chicago tonight and responds in a meaningful way to a woeful, frankly, substandard effort against Buffalo on Tuesday. They were challenged publicly and at practice on Wednesday. This is the time. Like, they have to come out. They have to put in the type of effort that is a no-doubter that you can see from the stands, from on television. Now, they don't have to dominate tonight. They don't even have to win. They just have to show they care. We went through this a bit last year, the funky vibes in, in January, the sense that perhaps players weren't happy with the direction of the organization, a sense that only grew louder as the discontent from veteran players like Nate Schmidt and Braden Holtby seeped into public view and consciousness. A lot has happened to this team over the past couple of years, and in particular, the way the club switched directions, pinched pennies, lost some key veteran players that formed the competitive backbone of the 2020 bubble team, Markstrom, Toffoli, Tanev, even Stetcher. It still seems to resonate that the players brought in to replace those guys last year, Holtby and Schmidt, instead rejected how this organization functioned, certainly didn't help, and neither did the outbreak or the poor start or the poor performance or the status of coaches lingering through the year to the point that players publicly lobbied for them to be reassigned. Now you get to this offseason, and the club got creative in overhauling the roster. Like, good work was done. Garland, Ekman Larson, Dickinson, Pullman were brought in. A ton of bloated salaries for players were sent out. And yet as training camp opened, funky vibes continued, right? The Hamannick situation, the mod injury, a lingering long COVID-related ailment for Brandon Sutter. Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson unsigned right, in, right up until the last week of camp. For all of those factors, some of them outside the club's control. Like, I, I've liked a lot of what I've seen from this team on balance through four games. Like, I like the push and the effort, and I like the way they played through Goonery that we saw in Detroit. I like the way the club took it to the Flyers. I even liked how they bent but didn't break defensively against a really potent Edmonton Oilers offense. The Buffalo game, however, and more importantly, like far more importantly, the Buffalo effort put all of that into doubt. That the organization then challenged the players with a practice on Wednesday that included punishments or prizes for the winning groups, as Travis Green would have it, mean, means that on Thursday, like, this is a really high-stakes game, particularly for one occurring just five games into the year against a Blackhawks team that hasn't won a single contest. And it's not a high-stakes game because the Canucks have to win. Please, no one call this a must-win. Please. It's high-stakes because if the effort isn't there, then we're going down a road where we'll have to at least conclude, or, or if not conclude, at least put on watch the idea that this team might have far bigger, far more intractable issues than something like personnel or special teams or defensive structure. That's to the point there with Thomas Drance here on the Canucks Hour on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. If you've got reactions, get them in. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. And, you know, just as you're finishing your rant there, Drancer, this unsigned text comes in. This team is so exhausting. Petey and Hughes miss training <laughs> camp. Besser gets hurt and misses time. Now Hughes is out for a maintenance day that's turning into more. This team is screwed already and <laughs> well here's the thing you know you're talking about the bad vibes right and the funky vibes yep. around the team and i think in our you know <laughs> in our efforts to and our our collective desire to kind of put last season in the rearview mirror and i mean that is everyone right the team but also fans i mean it wasn't fun to cover for the media right like we'd like to forget about it and move on as well it's i i almost wonder if we're kind of underestimating the long-lasting impacts that just that miserable slog of a year has had on everyone around the team, right? The players, coaches, fans, all of it. Because 
you know, we're seeing the reaction come in, and it, it, it's it's tempting to look at the Buffalo game and say, okay, it's one bad game. Every team has this. Whatever. It's early in the season. They'll have a bounce-back effort, and they'll be fine. But I just think the, the collective kind of sense of doom from Canucks fans is so great that it's really, really hard for them to have that kind of reaction because the vibes have just been off for so long. And it feels like until there's an extended stretch of strong performances, and that's not just wins, it's, as you're saying, it's it's effort until we see an extended run of high effort, good performances. That's kind of always going to be the discussion around this team, right? Because that's what it's going to take to erase those bad vibes that are still lingering from last year. Totally. And we'll see that we'll see like, that's really, I think you've made a really good point here, Jamie, because it's like the Buffalo game needs to be the one off. Yeah. Like that needs to be a one off. And if it's not right, then, then that's where we get into, you know, some really tough questions for the organization and this group of players, like not to let the players off the hook either. Right. This is fundamentally on them. So, you know, <laughs> we will, this is why tonight matters. Like, this is why they need to begin to rip that bandaid off. They need to begin to move past, you know, last season. And, and it's not just last season for like the organization. It's also the way that any struggles that they have are perceived as connected to, yeah. you know, the fall of 2020, right? If you, if you want to put that to bed, right. Coming out with a, the effort that we want, not, we need to see from this group of players, you know, that is like step one, two, and three. That's the whole ball game tonight for me anyway, Mar far more important than any, you know, tactical adjustments or, or injury news or, or what have you, like it's just showing up. And, you know, you brought up the, the changes that happened, the big changes that happened personnel wise with the team going into last year. Right. So that's in particular, the departures of, you know, Chris Tanev, Jacob Markstrom, throw Tyler Toffoli in there. Obviously, that was the most, for me, that was the most impactful one on the ice, although he wasn't a long-tenured Canuck like the other two. So it's a little different than uh, that we're, what we're talking about in terms of leadership and chemistry and all of that. You no, can but, but it wasn't. He, he had weight. Like, sure. he had weight. He rushed back. You know, he had a brutal injury. They thought it was going to be weeks on weeks. He rushed back in two weeks. Like, he'd won a cup. He got along with, like, he was quick friends with Pearson and Horvat and Miller. And he had weight and respect. He was a, a useful piece, not just on the power play, but had chemistry with both Horvat and Pedersen. Like, for, you know, it, it was more, it was, it's not, not about tenure. It's about weight. And he had it. You know, like, that's why it mattered. And now Alex Edler left the, off, left, left the team this offseason, right. right? And again, you know, maybe not the most high-impact piece on the ice, especially because they replaced OEL, although Edler's still a very useful NHL defenseman, but another guy with weight in that, in that locker room, right? And, and I do and, wonder, you know, yeah. I, I'm kind of like, I come from the, the very kind of new school hockey fan, sports fan mode of, I, I don't want to say scoffing at the importance of leadership, but probably not rating it as highly as generations past right and you know what i mean right people there, there's a tendency for us to kind of say ah you know leadership that that's that's what winning teams say they have but you know the the, the causality is first you win and then you have leadership rather than the other way around right but <laughs> right i i do wonder if maybe we in the market but maybe even people in the team have kind of underestimated the impact of losing those guys right losing guys with as you say weight like chris tanev markstrom edler to all of them like there is something to the idea of, okay, if you take out that many valued veteran pieces, 
even if you replace them and you think you've replaced them on the ice, it's still going to have an impact on your team in some way. Yeah, and I think the causality idea is funny because at the end of the day, all of this stuff doesn't matter when you win, right? Like winning solves everything in sports. Yep. It's like magic, right? But, you know, I, I mean, I've seen up close, like I've seen up close a talented group, like a talented core group, right? Sort of struggle year after year to win in the NHL. And, and a lot of it's personnel, a lot of it's support, but also a lot of it is you know, like a, an awful lot of it, in my opinion, is, you know, do you have the personalities within a group of players to like, and I don't want to use the word lead. It's more about, it's more about to like guide winning and hold a locker room accountable. Because that's the other thing that, you know, a coach, a GM, no one will ever admit this publicly, but in the contemporary NHL, like accountability cannot come from leadership it has to come from within a group itself period yeah. like period it has to guys are paid too much their contracts are fully guaranteed coaches are far more disposable general managers are far more disposable than star players on a team right like it has to come from within a room and you know when you lose like markstrom markstrom was kind of the unofficial captain of that team in terms of you know, like the Cappy di tutti Cappy, to use a term that Dan Riccio will will appreciate. Like, <laughs> you know, the 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 guy, right? And then and then Tanev was sort of like team dad, right? Like he he seemed to matter the most to the young young guys, right? Toffoli had that weight. Stetcher, very few people have ever worn the Canucks uniform with more pride. Like, you know, you lose those guys, you bring in vets that you know didn't didn't really gel with what the organization was trying to accomplish you get to a point where even guys like Edler who'd never wave forever decide that you know what now's the time now's the time right like all of yeah. this is canary in the coal mine stuff and then when you see the effort in Buffalo on Tuesday night uh, like is the club moving past that you know they brought in super competitive guys like Connor Garland they brought in guys with weight like Ekman Larson like there should be there should be a group en enough of a group here that they can, you know, turn it in a direction culturally, like in terms of the, in terms of the identity, the culture of the team, but well, you know, we need to see it. Yeah. And you know, the flip, as you say, okay, you bring in Connor Garland, super competitive. You bring in Oliver Ekman Larson, extremely well-respected veteran. You know, he has the, he, he has the approval, the stamp of approval from the Sedins, right. Coming in. So he carries a lot of weight as a veteran who's been a captain in the NHL. But, you know, you could say a lot of the same things about bringing in Braden Holtby and Nate Schmidt, right? Like Braden Holtby, incredibly respected, incredibly accomplished player. Nate Schmidt, been a good, been a key player on good teams, right? Great locker room guy, great personality, and that didn't work out. And, in fact, it didn't work out to the extent that both players wanted to move on after their one year here. And that that's not – you can't look at it and say, and therefore th this organization is completely dysfunctional top to bottom, right? Because there's other extenuating factors, but it's also – Something you have to keep in mind, right? It, it can be hard to integrate new pieces. Even if they have all of these attributes that you're thinking of in terms of leadership and weight and credibility, that doesn't mean they're going to step in and fill that void in your locker room right away. And, you know, I, I think you made a good point there, Drancer. What you said is winning cures all of this, right? And if they get yep. on a big winning streak and if they get hot for, you know, a month and, and, and climb the standings and are looking like a really good team, we're not going to be having this conversation 
but it can also be a vicious cycle, right? Because losing makes yeah. this conversation worse. And then it's harder to get on a winning streak. It's harder to get pointed <laughs> in the right direction. And it's harder to do the winning that would erase all of these bad feelings and these bad vibes. So that's why <laughs> I think already early in the season, there is this sense of pressure and sense of, okay, let's go. Let's start doing this. Because as I said, this is the kind of thing that can spiral, right? It can get out of control in a hurry. And you know, I do find it interesting that they, they're they going to look across uh, the other side, the, the other side of the rink tonight, and they're facing another very desperate team that's in a similar situation, right, that had high expectations coming into the year and does not want to see their season spiral, spiral out of control already in October. No, it's, it's, it's true. And let's take JT Miller as, like, the – best example of the winning cures all thing right like when yep. the team was winning in 1920 right he could do no wrong like look at the off-ice impact right the moment the team yep. starts to lose everyone all of the same things that everyone praised JT Miller for now get now get spun negatively right <laughs> like, like, like the competitiveness the body language like on and on right and I mean, I think JT Miller is one of those guys who just is JT Miller, like, you know, far from far from the list of this team's problems. So, yeah, it's a it's a really interesting and dangerous moment in the Canucks season. Like it, it is a moment where it feels like we're going to learn an awful lot, like an awful lot more about a team than we should learn from the fifth game of the season. And, you know, it's amazing that we've reached that point this early in a campaign that, you know, the club entered with high aspirations and a lot of curiosity the jt miller point is excellent because just charting like popularity based on the texts we get to the 650 650 inbox like in the 1920 season just holy cow jt miller this is incredible i can't believe we have this guy right like that's the tenor of the texts in those seasons and now you know we have this text come in JT Miller is the worst personality for this locker room. And it, it, well, he's the same guy. He's the same guy. It's just the team is losing now, so it plays a little worse. But you're right. If they, if and when they get back on the winning track, you're, you're going to see everyone singing JT Miller's praises again in a hurry. It's the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Lots more to come. Keep your texts coming in. We're getting tons of great feedback today. 650, 650 into the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. We'll also dig in a little bit more into what Quinn Hughes's absence, if he is in fact absent tonight, could mean for the team. And also take a bit of a deep dive into the team's special teams performance so far this year. That's coming up next. It's Canucks Hour on Sportsnet 650. 15 seconds left. Canucks need to hurry. Welcome back to the Canucks Hour on Sportsnet 650. Once again, here's Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drenz. What's going on? Welcome back to the show, the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. I'm Jamie Dodd, Thomas Strance joining me as always. Should point out again, of course, it is a Canucks game day. They'll play the Chicago Blackhawks on the road in Chicago, 5.30 Pacific time. Of course, you'll be able to hear all of your coverage pre-game, the call, and then post-game right here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. 50 we were uh, before i go any farther of course i have to mention that the canucks hour is brought to you by avenue machinery like a manager finding their team the right pieces to win avenue machinery will stop at nothing to find the machinery you're looking for visit avenue machinery.ca 
And uh, Drancer, your to the point today was about, you know, needing to see that real professional bounce back effort from the team against Chicago today. And we were having the discussion mm-hmm. about the mix of personalities and leadership. And it's something that it's so hard to define and so hard to quantify, but it's also real and it has a real impact, right? And we're still kind of, I think, learning what the leadership group on this team is like at this point, right? And I think that's one of the things fans want to see. They want to see that leadership from the players in games like tonight. Obviously, JT Miller is obviously, he's going to come up, right, when things like this happen. And, and this texture texts in, not necessarily specifically about Miller, but he says, sometimes the personality might be great for winning and terrible for losing. Great leaders stay level-headed. Guys like Taze and the Sedins lead by not getting too high or low emotion can be a tool, but it gets out of hand easily. I, I love that text. That's unsigned texter, brilliant text. You're dead on. And I actually have a term for this that I use privately, but I've never said publicly before. But I but I do wanna I do wanna bring it up. Um, the the term that I use pu- uh, privately about that type of personality in hockey is sunshine patriot. <laughs> and it's like a guy, a guy who can maybe add to your gear, like he can add a gear to your club if things are going well, but isn't necessarily the dig us out of a bad spot type of leader. And there's there are different types of leaders. You still want a good player with that type of personality on your team, right? It's just that sometimes when things you know, you're in the foxhole, you might need something a little bit different. I I love that text message. Well, and that's why for all of the attention that the captaincy and wearing the C gets in the NHL, right? When you hear the coaches and the players talk, it's always about the leadership group, right? And the group of players doing the leadership. And I think it goes to what you're saying. You need that mix of different personalities. It's not going to work if everyone, if you have five guys who are the same type of leader on the team, right? You need to have those different guys who can step in in different moments. And you're right, saying that a guy is, as you say, a sunshine patriot, that doesn't mean he has no value as a leader. It's just it's going to be most impactful in specific moments. And, you know, I like this text from Dwayne as well, who texted in 650-650, says, all teams have personnel changes that affect their locker room in significant ways. Adapting to that and having young players see the opportunity for new leadership and overcoming is is one part of a successful team. And I, I do feel like what we're seeing right now, for, and again, this is very much obviously from the outside looking in, but what it looks like to me is we're seeing a transition of leadership on the Canucks, and we're just kind of waiting to see what the new leadership looks like. And maybe part of it is some of the young players learning and adapting to that role that's been vacated by a lot of the veteran players leaving. For sure. And, you know, it's not a it's not a straight line process, right? It's not a linear process. But, you know, I, I do think that having guys that show you the way, like, sort of matters, right? And, like, I think about Kevin Bieksa's address at the Sedin retirement night, right? Yep. And for me, for me, he gave us one of the great hockey descriptions descriptors and he was talking specifically about this organization a guy who knows this organization inside and out right and you know he had this line and and i'll read it because i've got it in front of me i happen to have it in front of me it's there's a sedine culture to this organization bx has said and it's been absorbed by guys like alex edler chris tanev jacob markstrom and our new captain bo horvat 
The crowd roared at that line. He had then added, and I've already seen them pass it along to Petey and Quinn and Brock, and they'll pass it along to the next generation of players. And in 20 years, there will still be a Sedin flavor to this organization and the Sedin culture in that dressing room. That will transcend any on-ice statistics that they have. But other than Bo Horvat, who was a first-year captain, like all the other guys he name-checked are gone, right? Like all of that is, is gone. And so, you know, I think... What's what's a little bit galling too is is for all that this organization prioritized having leaders uh, that were expensive <laughs> cap wise right for uh-huh. years and years you know to to then lose guys like Tanev and Markstrom right the way that they were lost in particular right I mean that does I do think linger in, in terms of impact and and you know in I'll think that I I like I'll think that anyway personally until. Until I'm shown <laughs> otherwise, like until I see the club do the type of thing that they've been challenged to do tonight, which is to put that Buffalo game in the rearview mirror and not repeat it for the rest of the season. As mentioned, it's the Canucks hour here on Sportsnet 650. Just a few lineup notes for you ahead of the game against the Chicago Blackhawks tonight, 530 Pacific time. Thatcher Demko will be in net. No game day skate for the Canucks today as a team, so we don't know the exact lineup, line combinations, anything like that. But Vasily Butkoles and Luke Shen, Quinn Hughes were out there skating hard this morning as a trio, which would lead us to believe that Pod Colson and Shen are going to be out of the lineup. The corresponding moves there would be Alex Chason coming in at forward and Kyle Burrows coming in on defense. Quinn Hughes is uh, a game-time decision. I, I, I'm not sure if Travis Green used those words exactly, but he said he's close. He's close tonight, so we'll see. So he was out there skating, didn't skate yesterday, maybe trying some stuff out on the ice, and we'll see if Quinn Hughes is able to suit up for the Canucks uh, when they hit the ice against the Blackhawks tonight. Now, you brought up an interesting point, Drancer, yesterday when we were talking about that kind of debacle in Buffalo. And one of the things you said was, you know, look, we all know Quinn Hughes is an exceptional puck-moving defenseman. He's a one-man breakout out there. But maybe we didn't quite realize just how crucial he is to the Canucks getting the puck out of their zone, just how much they rely on having Quinn Hughes out there to get the puck out of their zone. Because obviously, all of a sudden, you take him out of the picture, and it was a major, major struggle for that team to cleanly exit the defensive zone against Buffalo. Yeah, you know, and Chris Faber, who hosts the Saturday program, the warm-up for Sportsnet 650, made an interesting point when he observed that Rathbone, Jack Rathbone, had been on the ice for more than half of the Canucks' scoring chances for at 5-on-5 in that Buffalo game. I mean... Doesn't that just make immediate sense in your mind's eye when you think they missed Quinn Hughes and the only defenseman who was on the ice for more than four scoring chances for was was <laughs> Rathbone? Like, doesn't that just make so much sense as an explanation for part of what ailed the Canucks in Hughes's absence? Uh, it, it's a fascinating sort of setup, right? Where you've got this one-man breakout machine. He might be the best one-man breakout machine in hockey, you know, now that Eric Carlson's long in the tooth. And yet, for as valuable as that is, you know, if you don't have redundancy, right, then then you're really vulnerable when he leaves the lineup. And that that's clearly what's happened to the Canucks. Like, the, the Quinn Hughes absence was just way more noticeable than it should be. And I do wonder, I mean, we saw Jack Rathbone play top four minutes 
for yeah. the Canucks uh, against Buffalo. Like, I wonder if they have to find a way to crank that up, especially if if Hughes is out and they're getting stuck in their zone the way they did, like like mired in the mud the way they did against the Sabres again at any point. Like, I wonder if the solution isn't just to ratchet up Rathbone's ice time as much as the coaching staff is comfortable doing. Well, as you said, it's, you know, you talk about redundancy. The redundancy for Quinn Hughes is Jack Rathbone. Now, that's putting a lot of weight on a rookie's shoulders, right? And it's a question of how much of that can Jack Rathbone handle? How much of that load can he carry? And it's also a question of how high is Travis Green comfortable ratcheting up his minutes, right? Like, because, you know, Jack Rathbone's right. playing on the third. When, when everyone is healthy, Jack Rathbone's playing on the third pairing for Travis Green for a reason, right? Like, he is not giving him the Quinn Hughes treatment where Quinn Hughes basically came instantly into the lineup and Travis Green, you know, was basically looked at it and said, okay, well, you're our number one defenseman now because you're that talented. That's not what Jack Rathbone has, has been given so far. So, I agree with you that, you know, Rathbone, he's the only guy who can really replicate elements of what Quinn Hughes does. But I also look at it and I'm not sure how comfortable Travis Green is going to be playing him massive, massive minutes in Quinn Hughes' absence. And I I just wonder, are there other ways for the team to kind of adapt to the absence of Quinn Hughes if he is not, in fact, able to go tonight? Because you're right, it was ugly at times against Buffalo. And you don't want... You don't want the team to be completely reliant. Yeah, I get it. It's Quinn Hughes. He's exceptionally talented, but you still don't want to, want to be that reliant because even when he's in the lineup, he's only out there, what, you know, 25 minutes a night. So that's a lot of other minutes you have to fill where you would love to be able to break the puck out cleanly. For sure. No, I, I mean, you know, speed on the back end is uh, something that, you know, has been a bit of an issue for this team for a while, right? Like for years. And, looks like it continues to be in the absence of Hughes, uh, you know, getting Burroughs back in the lineup will help. I'd expect Brad Hunt, if he plays tonight to be far better than he was against Buffalo on Tuesday. Like Brad Hunt is good. Brad Hunt is a good NHL player. He had a miserable first outing for the team. Didn't make the best first impression, but Brad Hunt is still like very good depth, very good depth. Uh, in fact, is an NHL regular caliber piece. And so, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be too concerned that that's a, a performance we'll see repeated. And then Tyler Myers, I mean, for all that he occasionally is criticized for the occasional chaotic defensive play, uh, like he can move the puck. <laughs> <laughs> he, he can move the puck, right? Like he's a good yep. secondary puck mover. So, you know, my, like the, the onus shifts to guys like Burroughs and Hunt to at least be, you know, uh, like safe to at least be disciplined in moving the puck up ice and to Myers and Rathbone to give it some push with their feet as well. Uh, that's really how the club has to address it. And then, you know, they just cannot have the constant mess of backhand saucer passes through the neutral zone that get picked off and feed their opponent's game like that yeah. in particular uh, cannot occur again. Well, a lot of, and I did think it was interesting that Kyle Burroughs is going to draw back in in place of Luke Shen, right? That seems to be obviously addressing a need for more mobility, more ability to move the puck from the blue line. That's all true. But as you said there at the end, Drancer, right? The forwards have to own this to a certain extent as well, right? Like they have to play their part in making sure the breakouts are smooth and making sure they're not playing these incredibly high danger, low percentage plays that, that end up, as you say, just feeding the other team's breakout. Like, yeah, it's, it's natural that your, you know, your breakouts are going to suffer with Quinn Hughes out of the lineup, but 
you can't just say, oh, well, what are we going to do? Quinn Hughes is out, right? Like, it, there has to be a total team effort to kind of paper over that absence, too. 100%. And, yeah, I mean, safe puck movement through the neutral zone is, like, the only way you can do it, right? Like, you, you need to be 100% sure in connecting those passes and connecting the game. When the game gets disconnected, everything looks disorganized. And that's what happened, in my view, to the Canucks against Buffalo. It's the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Keep your text coming in, 650-650. Ten more minutes or so here, myself, Jamie Dodd, and Thomas Drance. And the other thing we wanted to dive into a little bit today, Drancer, was the special team's performance so far. Because I think you and I probably agree that for this team to reach its goals, it needs to consistently win the special teams battle, right? Like it is not mm-hmm. going to go out there and blow out teams at five on five. So they need to be able to find some sort of edge on special teams. And so far this season, I know they've, they've cashed in on the power play a few times, but in that Buffalo game, you know, they had a chance to, they, they went on the power play when they were up two one, they had a chance to make it three one. If you cash in there, that, that changes the tenor of that game potentially they couldn't even get set up right they had another one when it was 2-2 early in the third period that one was better they actually generated some zone time but still unable to cash in at a key time in that game where you know they still had a chance to to get things turned in the right direction didn't concede on the penalty kill against buffalo but buffalo scores a big goal after that tanner pearson Uh, double minor so there there's been lots of cause for concern I think early with both the penalty kill and the power play which unit right now are you more concerned with where it's at not close by far the power play I actually wouldn't say that I'm concerned about the uh, sorry it's definitely the penalty kill right I would actually not say that I'm concerned about the power play to be totally honest with you when I look through you know the power play in terms of its underlying profile like I see some things to be, you know, low-key concerned about. I, I'm concerned about Bo Horvat's attempt rate. I don't think they're getting the puck to him enough in the bumper. I think that's a really dangerous shot for them, and they need to find a way to get that shot off. Um, I'm a little bit concerned about the overall shot rate with the first unit on the ice, and, and actually the first unit's generated by far like a lot more with chase on in the lineup than they did without him against Buffalo. So, you know, I do sort of look at that as, as probably a big reason why we're going to see chase on likely likely against the Blackhawks on Thursday. Um, But, you know, overall, I wouldn't call myself concerned about the power play. The power play's got the pieces. You know, they haven't had Besser, Hughes, and Pedersen all together for a single game yet. Like there's a ton of reasons why I think the power play is going to be fine and already has been fine in terms of both results and underlying profile. The penalty kill, however, is surrendering way too much. And the penalty kill is a really hard one for the Canucks, I think, because the fact that Bo Horvat, who has the skill set to be an absolute ace PK guy, but just isn't for whatever reason, yep. creates a really unique team construction issue where you kind of need two bottom six centermen who are PK guys, like bona fide PK guys. Uh, this team's missing Sutter and Mott, too, takes away probably their two best penalty-killing forwards. And, you know, I, I had a chat with Jason Dickinson about it on Wednesday following practice, and he talked about how on a PK unit that he played in played on consistently in Dallas with Blake Como, they had gotten to a point where they just knew what the other one was doing. They didn't even have to communicate that much, either on the ice or, or on the bench between shifts, because they just had a sense 
of how to support and play with one another because they'd done it together for so long. Well, now you look at Vancouver's foremost consistently used penalty killing forwards and it's Highmore, it's Lamico, it's Dickinson, it's Dowling. And it's like none of those guys played together last year in a PK role, right? Like yeah. they're, they're figuring it out. And he was saying right now for me, Dickinson was saying, I'm trying to do too much as opposed to trying to, you know, do the subtle things that we need to do four on five and that I would do probably a little bit better or will do probably a little bit better once I have that familiarity built in with my partner. So a really interesting insight into exactly what's ailing the Canucks sort of penalty killing, at least up top. And yeah, I mean, for me, when I look at the shot rate that they're surrendering four on five, like that is a real problem. The underlying profile suggests that this Canucks PK, if something doesn't materially change, could be one of the league's worst. And that basically offsets any benefit from having a potent power play unit the way we expect the Canucks to. Yeah, and I'm with you on the power play, right? And I feel a little naive saying this because I think I was saying it all of last season as well and it never really materialized, but I I just see too much talent on that first power play unit for it to be – for it not to be good, right? Like, it's going to be Mm. a good power play. And I I also just look at the talent now – that they can put out on the second unit to kind of improve the production they were getting from that unit last year, right? Like, I I just think there's too many effective power play players on this team for it to struggle for long, right? And not that it's necessarily struggled so far, but you know what I mean. But you're right. It's not just that they need one good special teams unit. They need an overall edge from special teams. You cannot be getting just absolutely, you know, annihilated on the penalty kill on a regular basis. The continuity point is a really interesting one. And, you know, I, I do think it's funny that we're coming out here and banging the drum for, you know, character and leadership and continuity today, which is <laughs> not necessarily neither of our normal MOs. But as you said, talking to Dickinson, right, when you have that built-in chemistry and understanding of exactly what the other guys are going to do on the ice, of course it's going to massively improve your ability to kill a penalty. The four forwards you listed off who are doing it for the Canucks, like those guys just met. Like, Lamico's been here, what, two weeks, if that, right? Like, he, he's, he's just meeting all of these guys, you know? Lamico, so, uh, Lamico spent 15 hours in Vancouver before flying out yeah. on this road trip. 15 exactly. hours! <laughs> yeah, he doesn't even know where he's living in the city yet. Like, yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, so he's trying to figure out a ton of things. They're all, a lot of them are new. Well, they're all new to the organization. I mean, Matthew Highmore was here for a, a little bit last year, but they're all new to the organization, so they're all learning a new style of playing the penalty kill as well. So, yeah, of course there's going to be these growing pains, but it's how long do those growing pains persist? How long can the team afford them to persist? And then with Brandon Sutter and Tyler Mott, you know, not only are they two guys who are really effective individually on the penalty kill, but they're also your only options that do have that built-in chemistry, right? Like they're the guys who have been out there killing penalties together and who have that kind of continuity and chemistry already built up with each other. For sure. And, and I mean, Mott, you know, I haven't had an update on him in a few days, but there was a sense that maybe he joined the club at some point on this road trip. Uh, looks like at this point that probably won't happen. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that they'll even practice tomorrow unless they really lay another egg here. But, yeah, you know, m- the fact that he didn't start the season on long-term injured reserve is a really good sign that he's not far, far away, right? Like that they weren't willing to put him – on the shelf for 10 games for cap benefit, right? Like that tells you a ton about his timeline. Like if he's not back 
next week, that would become a bit of a surprise. So, you know, we'll we'll see where that happens. But but Mott Mott's return can't come soon enough. Not not just in terms of the speed, not just in terms of the against the grain scoring, but especially on the PK. He's been so influential there for the Canucks over the past two years when he's healthy. They really need him. And so you know, <laughs> that that can help. That can only help. The penalty kill can't get much worse, but it does have to get better. And, you know, I, I know a lot of people get driven nuts by the way that it looks passive on yep. in-zone play, yep. right? But kind of subtly, the Canucks PK is not completely passive, even if they don't play a pressure PK up high. Like, one thing, one area that they are very aggressive on is having their defenders fan out to challenge the shots from the flank, right? Like they block a ton of shots uh, off of flankers um, with the way that the penalty kill is set up. It's just that they don't really pressure high. Uh, The whole thing is designed though to limit scoring chances and they do get wide. Like they get wide as a, you know, formationally speaking when the puck moves to the flanks. And, And that is actually a little bit more aggressive than what you'll see from some teams. Uh, obviously, there's some teams that really, really do pressure. Yeah. I, I tend to, I tend to prefer, like personally, and, and statistics tend to back, back up that playing a pressure PK is is probably a little bit more, more effective, all told, even though it's a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, but you know, when when you consider the strength of this team is in part goaltending, right? Limiting the high danger stuff is is clearly the goal of this, not limiting shots, all told, and. You know, that, that's sort of why the Canucks PK approaches things the way it does. And I hear a lot of criticism about how passive it is. But it's really not as passive as I think fans, uh, uh, certainly the detractors, tend to suggest. It, it's an interesting point because, yeah, we get those texts all the time, right? And I understand it because you look at it and sometimes it seems like the other team is just completely unbothered, on has the puck on the perimeter. And I get it. Oh, they, the Canucks perspective is great. Have the puck on the perimeter. We don't care about that. I understand that. I understand the theory of it completely. I also understand why it makes fans pull their hair out sometimes, right? Because I think it's also when it looks bad and you do give up a goal, then it looks really, really bad, right? It looks like you are barely pressuring the guys with the puck and and the fans are just left there kind of saying, oh my goodness, what are we even doing out there? But it's an interesting point that you bring up that, you know what, they actually are aggressive just in different spots on the ice. That's going to do it for the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Don't forget the Canucks play in Chicago against the Blackhawks tonight at 5.30. Pre-game starts at 3.30 right here on Sportsnet 650. Drance and myself, we will be back tomorrow for another edition of the Canucks Hour on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.